Hello, thanks for checking out the KZMC podcast. My name is April King, and I am the Associate Pastor at KZMC. This podcast is a recording of sermon teachings from our 9.30 a.m. Sunday morning worship gatherings. We release a new episode every Tuesday. If you're looking to check out our Sunday mornings, you can find our live stream over on our YouTube channel on Kingsfield Zurich Mennonite Church. We would also love to have you join us in person. You can find out all the details about our Sunday mornings on our website, kzmc.ca. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Normally this time of year, uh, when my wife and I owned and operated a broccoli farm just outside of Exeter, in the middle of June, we prepared for orientation of our new and returning workers. Thanks, Greg. But we have since retired from broccoli farming, but I still often remember and comment to those around me about what we'd be doing on the farm during any period of time of year. I'm sure this is not annoying to anybody around me when I say that. Uh, Work orientation involved inviting workers to the farm on Saturday morning in middle June, just before harvest, and we gave our workers essential information on how to do the job that we hired them to do, how to work productively, and how to work safely. I have a PowerPoint slide which covers the topics we covered during there, and there it is right there. Thanks, Joe. It'd be very similar structure to other workplace orientations in Ontario. And basically, I went over the purpose and history of the farm, standard operating procedures, um, hazards. We we gave on hands-on demonstration of how to pack broccoli and do wagons and do other things. We talked about leadership, who who the leaders were, and we looked for clues about who in leadership development. Now I bring up the work orientation because it's connected today, today's message, in an attempted illustration. When Paul and his companions came to Crete to preach the message of Jesus and the people responded and they became Christians, Paul did not immediately leave, but rather he stayed and lived among them. He taught them the essential things they need to know to be a follower of Jesus and to be a church in a similar pattern to the workplace workplace orientations. Let's look at the slide again. So what Paul would have done is that he would have talked about the purpose of the church, the purpose of Christians, the history. He'd talk about the Old Testament, the scriptures. He'd talk about Jesus, Jesus Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which would have been all new information to these people. Then he talked about how, how a church ran, how you, how you conduct yourselves, how you deal with things. He talked about hazards, he talked about warnings. He says, these are traps, these are things that can, uh, that can trip you up in your, in your Christian, Christian life as a church and as an individual. And he gave on hands-on demonstration. He lived among them. He worked among them. They saw how he did things. He they might have saw how there was conflict among people and how they resolved it. They just saw how Christianity lived out as Paul and his team lived among them. Of course, he talked about leadership development as well. So we look at the book of Acts, we can clearly see that this was a common practice. The apostles would go out to a region or a city as they went out and spread the, spread the gospel, and people would become Christians. And when they did that, they did not leave. They stayed, sometimes weeks, sometimes months, and sometimes they even stayed up to a year. 
That's just normally what they did. And what we heard from today's scripture reading that Paul sometimes left somebody from his group, from his team, behind to help continue the work and ensure the group's survival. And, this is, and in Crete, he left Titus behind. And other churches, he left people like Timothy. And that's why he wrote letters to Timothy for that reason. And Barnabas and others, when you, read, when you read the book of Acts. Also, a common practice for the apostles was to write letters to the church with follow-up training after they left. Now, going back to my illustration on the farm, we also did follow-up teachings on our farm. After orientation, and after we called in the local workers to start packing broccoli, after a while, it became a regular occurrence to give follow-up teachings to our workers, repeating what was taught at orientation and demonstration. With some of our new workers, this is their very first job, other than babysitting or lawn cutting. There's lots of new information to know, lots to learn, and there's lots to just physically do and physically endure. And that's where rubber met the road, and there's an ongoing need to repeat some of the information as each situation was warranted. Now, over time, through trial and error, and lots of error on my part, I slowly figure out how to effectively communicate this necessary information to the workers in which they needed to hear to do their job productively. Now, I wrote an outline of the basis of what I did towards the end of my broccoli growing career, and I put in PowerPoint. At the next slide for there, there it is, the follow this is the follow-up teaching. Now, I'll just briefly share, my first year, it would have been a lot of yelling and screaming, you know, just whatever. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I dropped the ball. I embarrassed myself. I had to earn the respect back from my employees when I just overreacted. Anyway, this is what I became. So when somebody needed information, whether an individual or a group of people, I would say, okay, this is what we're doing here. We're here to work in a rocky farm. We're here to make money. We need to do this well. I was thankful that they came. They could have worked anywhere, but they chose to work at our farm. And I said, thank you for coming. I appreciate you working here. And I've said, okay, you know what? I know she arrives on time. That's great. You did this well. You did that well. But here's the point of what we want to talk about right now. I want, this is where we need improvement. Now, um, when I... Um, oh, I'm right here. I'm losing my track here. Sorry. Okay, yes. Thanks to the side-by-side -side feature on PowerPoint which I just discovered when I was doing this message, they have a feature you can do things side by side. You can see on the next slide that I uh, compared what, oh, we're not there yet. Go to the next one. Is there a um, next one after that, Joe? Yeah, there you go, side by side right there. Okay, so there's what I did in the farm. And if you look at, let's look at what, how Paul uh, spoke to Titus. Now, he, in his verse one, Paul says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, uh, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of truth, which leads to godliness. That's the purpose right there. He's the, he, we know who he is and what he's doing and why he's doing it. And then it says express gratitude and affirming. In verse 4, he compacts it. He says to Titus, my true son and common faith. He says two things here. He says, Titus, you personally, you are my son. We are connected. You know, we're connected. I'm connected to you. Obviously not my son, but I think of you as my son. There's a total connection here. That's kind of affirming him. And then he says, in our common faith. He's saying, you're not deviating, Titus. You're not going away. You're not doing your own way. 
we're, in, we're on point, we're on message, so he infirms what they did. And then he says, he addresses the point of concern, the reason why I left you in Crete was that you might put into order what was left unfinished. Now if you look at other epistles that Paul wrote, or James, or Peter, there's a similar format of doing that. He, he restates their purpose, he expresses gratitude, he affirms what's going well, and then he starts addressing the points of why he's writing the letter. So he, we know that he'd had the orientation, he, then he left, he left Titus there. He, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Paul must have heard reports about what was currently happening in that church after Crete, after he left. And he decided to address these specific issues and he needed to deal with by letter, which we're reading about today. Now, what was the issues that Paul was addressing? Well, we don't have time to go through all the things that Paul brings up in his letter to Titus, but we have time to look at what Paul addresses to the men of the church. And let's look at that passage now. And I think we have a scripture there. I, I apologize to Josh, J J Josiah there. He has to deal with me <laughs> in my, my mess here. So thank you for what you're doing. appreciate that. So from today's scriptures, um, that's it. It's good. 2.11. Nope, go back one, sorry. There we go. Here's today's scripture. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, in sound faith, in love, and endurance. And similarly, encourage young men to be self-controlled. Now, when I read that, I noticed that there was a common, uh, common word, and the word is self-control. He, he says it to the older men, and he says it to the younger men, and that caught my attention. Let's look at the older, what he says to the older men first. The first word that Paul mentions is temperance. And I'll be honest, I didn't know exactly what that me word meant. I had to look it up. If I'm going to speak about it. I should know what it says. And I shared a bit on the screen there. It says temperate. To be self-regulated, to be self-controlled, to be control of oneself at all times. Because Paul used both words, temperance and self-control, and they mean virtually identically the same thing, I believe that stresses that what Paul is trying to say is that this is a high priority for the older men to do. Now let's look at what Paul did not say to the men on Crete. He did not say, well, you won't find it here. Paul did not tell the men to do things like go to church meetings more often, be more involved when you're at church, give more in tithes and offerings, give more time to projects, Invite your friends to church events. Stay home from the local Coliseum and stop watching those gladiators and spend more time with your wife and kids. Paul says none of that. Instead, he focuses on the internal character of both the older men and the younger men, but being self-controlled. To me, it's almost funny what Paul says to the younger men. Paul only mentions to be self-controlled to young men and he says nothing else. That's it. I'm not sure if this is addressing a short-term attention span of young men, or if it's saying that self-control is ultimately the most important thing young men should focus on, invest in, and in comparison, nothing else matters. But self-control, this is the one subject Paul wrote about to Titus for the men on Crete. This is clearly a high priority for the men 
to address and focus on. Now, I'm sure there's many thoughts and opinions about how men should deal with their self-control issues. I don't have any thoughts and opinions, and, uh, and nor would, and I, I don't think anybody around me in my family or any of my friends would say that I have, uh, you know, I'm an expert in the subject. Far from it. I do, however, have a curiosity to know how Paul addresses men and how to deal with these self-control issues in the letter of Titus. And I'm sure you all share that curiosity with me. Now, before I go any further, are there women here who have the same curiosity about what Paul says about self-control? In Titus chapter 2 and verse 5, which is not on the PowerPoint, it says that young women also need to focus on, among other things, is self-control. So addressing self-control is not a unique issue for men alone. Now, it doesn't say, doesn't, for the older women, it said many things there, but it did not say that. But, you know, as I briefly look around the room, I don't see any older women here, so I guess it all applies to everybody, okay? All right. All right. Does Paul address the issue of self-control? How does Paul address the issue of self-control in the letter to Titus? Well, I see four points of encouraging and good news that Paul brings into relation to self-control as he both offers specific tools for both men and women to use. And these four points can be considered to be a preventative maintenance program. The first point that Paul talks about in Titus, verse 2, verse 11 and 12, bingo. I have a PowerPoint slide for that, which you can see. If you look at the bottom of the verse, it even mentions the word self-control again. I even highlighted that. So let's read it. For the grace of God appeared and offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled lives, upright and godly lives in this present age. The good news here is that God promises to be with us in this process, and he is part of the process. God does not tell us to figure, out, figure it out for ourselves, and he does not abandon us to our own devices. Instead, he promises to teach us how to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and he teaches us to live self-controlled and upright godly lives. I will be with you, God is saying here, we will work on this together. We are not left alone. God wants to partner with us, to teach us. And we can clearly see from this passage that God is rooting for us. He wants us to succeed. I think that is good news. I think that is great news. The second point, which Paul talks again about self-control, is in Titus 3, chapter 3. Uh, Verse 3. Paul now, in this stage, he goes back to his original orientation of when he was present there, and he reviews. And he says, At one time, we too, notice that's underlined, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all passions and pleasures. There's two things that are very powerful things, that, that two very powerful things that Paul says here. 
First, when we look at the wording that Paul uses, he says, we too. Paul is speaking to Titus, and Titus is supposed to be passing this message on to the people of Crete. Paul is including himself as being foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved. Paul is being honest and transparent about who he is, and he includes himself with Titus. Paul is saying to all, publicly declaring that we are all in this mess together. By example, Paul is demonstrating, is demonstrating how to be fully transparent to God. And second, as Paul says this publicly to everybody, including himself, everybody has the same problems and everybody has the same common denominator. We are all the same. We are all broken and battered people. We're all born in sin. We're all subject to gener generational sin of our families, of being like our grandfathers, our fathers, our sons, being like us. We've all been mistreated and bent and bruised along the way. Now, we all have various degrees. The context is we all have various degrees of that, but we all have the common denominator of that being true. And Paul includes himself in this category. Paul is saying to us that we are not alone. We are all battling, but we don't have to fight this battle ourselves. We don't have to turn away from each other in shame because it's a unique problem. We have, it's not unique at all. We have each other. We don't have to be islands to ourselves as men tend to do by default. Isn't that true? This is such great news and powerful message to be transparent, to be transparent in real time so we can be supporting each other and we can be accountable to each other in our quest for self-control. And if only we had the courage to do so. And it all starts us with being honest with ourselves and honest with God and honest with each other. And Paul here in this passage leads the way into transparency. Now the third point Paul says in the letter to Titus is that Paul restates God's amazing invitation in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. Paul again brings the people on Crete back to the original orientation and back to the original message he shared when he first arrived on Crete and spread the message, gospel message. This message of God's of, of there's kindness and love of God has appeared, and he saved us not because we deserved it, because of what his mercy. Now, a strange thought came to my mind as I read this verse. I wondered what, was the, what is the opposite to kindness, love, and mercy. And in my mind, I thought up, the opposite to kindness is harshness and judgment. Now, the opposite to love can be either hatred or worse, in my mind, indifference. And the opposite to mercy is rejection and abandonment. Because of our failures and self-control, sometimes repeated and sometimes spectacular failures, the people around us may offer to us judgment, harshness, rejection, abandonment, hatred, and sometimes people just give up on us. Some are all these things, some or all these things, as terrible and unpleasant as they are, 
may be actually appropriate consequences for how we behaved. But after experiencing these consequences of what we have done, and perhaps when we see the good news of God's kindness and God's love and God's mercy, we see it in a new and contrary light, and perhaps we welcome this message enthusiastically. God repeats this invitation of God. The invitation is not based on what we do, but is based on God's character with his overflowing kindness, love, and mercy. This invitation is an anchor for all people at all times, especially, or anybody, who's struggling to, con- to maintaining their self-control and have been, or have been losing ground This invitation is very good news indeed. God invites us always in any way. And the fourth and last point of self-control that Paul talks about in Titus 3, verse 5 and 6, is that he saved us through the washing and rebirth by by the Holy Spirit. I'll read that again. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, we poured out generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Paul points to the good news of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit has been poured out generously to all. And that's, we can read that about in the book of Acts where it starts and continues. Paul points to the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Washing of rebirth and renewal. Paul does not use the past tense here. Paul does not say that believers were washed at one time and renewed at one time. It is not a one-and-done event. Paul uses the present, ongoing term of washing of rebirth and renewal. He says the people of Crete need to be washed of their past sins, but also their present sins and also for the sins of the future. Paul says the people on Crete that they need to have their lives rebuilt from the destruction of their own lives, what they destroyed themselves, and the damage that they inflicted on people around them in the past, in the present, and what will happen, unfortunately. Paul is pointing to the eagerness of the Holy Spirit who wants to be involved in our lives to clean us up and to rebuild us, past, present, and future. The good news is that our own desperation of wanting to be cleaned and renewed, God is equally desperate to clean and renew us. And we know this is the point of Jesus coming to earth to to wash us and restore us, to rebuild our relationship with our Heavenly Father and to rebuild our relationships with each other. This is the powerful message of the gospel and the reason why Jesus came to earth and why he died and why he rose again. So the Holy Spirit wants to clean us up and wash us up to renew us and rebuild us. So let's let's look at the summary of all this. First, Paul says he, first, the very first thing, which is not in the PowerPoint, Paul says everybody's got got a problem with self-control and he especially points out to all men, young and old, and we know he talks to some women. Then he delivers four points of good news of ongoing preventive maintenance. First, Paul says he wants to partner with us. He wants to teach us to say no to ungodliness, and he wants to teach us to be self-controlled. Second, Paul says 
We're all fighting this battle, but we don't have to fight alone. We have God, and we have each other, and that's modeled in Paul's transparency. Third, Paul said there's always a standing invitation to receive God's kindness and love and mercy, regardless of what's happening around us. This mercy is this, this invitation is an anchor which we can all count on. And fourth, Paul says the Holy Spirit is willing and able to wash us, clean us, rebuild our brokenness and the brokenness that we've caused. This is good news all around. But there's still one more powerful truth in this scripture passage, but it's not in the text, it's in the context. I'm going to suppose that the people on Crete, when they're hearing this letter being read to them by Titus, the letter from Paul, and they may have had this thought. They're probably thinking, this is not new information. They've heard it all before, directly from Paul's mouth. They can remember him saying it. And I believe um, there's probably people in this room who said, you know what, I haven't heard anything new here today. It's all, I've heard it all before. We, this has been taught. This is what we do. This is what we're going on here. I believe that the repetition that Paul does that tells them again what they already know, herein lies the main point of the message today in context. So if there's one thing that you leave today from this message, I think this is what it is. We need to keep going. We cannot stop. We need to be actively participating in the process of being teachable, of being transparent, be actively accepting God's invitation of kindness, love, and mercy, and we desperately need to have the Holy Spirit continually clean and rebuild us. In the Christian church in North America in the last 25 years, we have seen the rise of the megachurch movement. I think everybody here probably has been aware of one of those churches or heard about it. But they mostly follow a similar pattern. They start off with this the dynamic leader, and it usually starts in the house church, and it grows from a handful of people and it grows to hundreds of people, then it grows to thousands of people, and then it grows to multiple locations, the satellite locations and campuses. These leaders' messages are online. Some people outside the church can go online and read, follow the messages, and I'm pretty sure that some of us have seen some of those videos of these pastors, these famous pastors. Unfortunately, around five years ago, a surprisingly large number of these same megachurch leaders have spectacularly and publicly failed. And they failed in large part due to self-control issues. Some have been involved in shady money dealings. Some have been involved in power abuse issues. And some have been involved in sexual deviations. While I was preparing for this message, I was talking things over with my wife, Tanya, and I was asking her feedback. And I do that because she's smarter than me and she has a great deal of insight. In discussion, I suggested that these pastors, these same pastors, mega pastors, who've had 25, 30 years preaching and teaching experience behind them, no doubt in my mind, at some point, these guys probably taught about self-control to their congregations. And it's highly likely, if you look in their archives, they've done it on more than one occasion. And um, there's probably even a higher possibility that they taught from this very passage in Titus about self-control. Tanya responded by saying that if these leaders can fail with the knowledge that they had, 
what hope is there for all of us, for the rest of us? Now, I thought this was a very profound statement for two reasons. First, because of the dangers associated with self-control or losing self-control, perhaps this is the very reason why Paul brought this issue of self-control to the front burner and made it a high priority when he taught in the letter of Titus. And second, I think we can conclude that possessing the knowledge and teaching and having the abundance teaching of self-control is not enough. It is not enough. So why did these mega church leaders fail in self-control? Well, we don't know. I can't know. I don't know if anybody knows. But I do have questions. And here's the questions. Did they stop becoming teachable? Did they stop being transparent and accountable to the people around them? Did they ignore the loving and kindness and mercy of God's invitation to return? And did they resist the Holy Spirit's attempt to clean up and restore the reason and issue about why they were caused them to, f- to fall and to fail? Well, we don't know. But I'll tell you what I can do. I can look in the mirror. I can ask myself the same questions. And I invite everybody here right now to ask the same questions that I'm asking here. How am I ongoingly making myself teachable? How do I even do that? Am I being honest with myself, and do I recognize that I have a problem, that I have a problem with self-control, and that I need to stop blaming others? I need to stop comparing myself to others and think that because I'm not so great, but they're worse, they're focused on them. And maybe even I'm okay in comparison, so I'm doing way better than them, so I don't need anything. That's unteachable. Or I'm, my efforts are focused on attempting to fix other people instead of fixing what I need to do for myself. I think this is the start of being teachable, admitting that I need help and that I need more information and knowing that God is eager to teach me when I do. Another question is, am I ongoingly being transparent to God and others? Am I seeking other people out who are also teachable and transparent? And it helps if we all are respecting confidentiality. I'm con- Am I continually seeking out connections with others and avoiding being self-isolated and living on an island? Am I willing to be held accountable? Am I willing to have my motives tested? Am I willing to do that process with other people? Another question I can ask myself is, am I ongoingly accepting God's invitation for me to come to him? Or am I believing lies that prevents me from coming back to him? I recently heard... Uh, some person was given a teaching and they talked about how each person has 70,000 thoughts go through their mind each day, which is a national amount. And the fault commentary was this, that not all those thoughts are true. And the implication is we have to decipher what's true and what's not within our own minds. Am I telling myself lies that requires, and I've told myself this lie, okay? I've actually thought this thought, if I can be so honest that I'm, I'm pretty sure that God is required to love me, but I'm also pretty sure 
that uh, I've disappointed him enough times that he no longer likes me. That sounds silly, but I actually believe that. And it's, you get into a weird state. He has to love me, but he doesn't have to like me. It doesn't say in the Bible, but like me. This is not what the passage of Titus says. This is a lie. And will I, lie, will I allow other lies to separate me from coming back to God and accepting his invitation, his ongoing invitation, his loving invitation? Another question I can ask, am I desperate to have the Holy Spirit work in my life, to be cleaned and renewed and rebuilt? And if not, am I doing all I can to seek him and find him? Am I willing to seek out other, other people and say, will you please pray for me? Will you go be about myself? Will you help me? Help me do this. Am I willing to do all things possible so that the Holy Spirit can be, can be working ongoingly in my life? Now, I'm not even sure if the word ongoingly, uh, I'm not even sure if the meaning of the word ongoingly is, is, is um, I have to try to see what I said here. I'm not even sure if ongoingly is actually a word. Okay, I just kind of, I'm sure if I made it up or it's in the dictionary, I have no idea to look. But I'm trying to use that word that expresses what Paul is trying to say to Titus, the main point of what Paul is saying to Titus. And he's also saying us here today. The intended meaning is that ongoingly, we need to be active and continually implementing Paul's directives in our lives for the purpose of preventive maintenance of a self-control event, of losing self-control, partial or all. The potential consequences for not having self-control or losing self-control along the way are potentially devastating for everybody. Now, we're not here to learn good English here today. And hopefully, though, we have heard what the Bible says about control. Now, each message uh, should have an illustration to demonstrate the points being made. Now, I do have one illustration. Now, I asked Jack here to to read the scripture today. And I had a reason. And I don't want to mean to embarrass Jack here, but I just want to share some observations. We work, uh, he volunteers at the DC where I work, and we have time to talk. And I've known Jack for years. I'm not trying to embarrass Jack, but I'll tell you this, okay? I think Jack lives out this message a lot, daily. I find Jack to be very transparent about who he is. He doesn't pretend to be somebody he's not. And uh, he's transparent to God, and he's transparent to people around him. I think there's ample evidence to know that he's aware of God's kindness, love, and mercy, and his need for that. And I think there's evidence that the Holy Spirit is changing Jack's life. Jack is not the man he used to be. And you know what? If you've heard Jack speak in church, he's continually inviting other men to join him on this journey. Now, there's many men in this church who are on the same journey. They've made themselves teachable. They've made this most transparent. And there's evidence that God is cleaning and rebuilding their lives. And when I look back at my own life, I see a person who has a long way to go. But I also, time, I also look back and I see the times when I'd grown spiritually and in maturity. There was times, there were, there were not always, not continuous, but there were times when I was teachable and when I was transparent, when I was transparent to other people, I was connected to people. And I was, I was very much awareness of God's kindness and grace and mercy because I desperately needed it. And I was very much aware that God was cleaning me and rebuilding me. Like I said, this is not ongoing in my life. It was just times. But the message in Titus today is clear. We all need to be ongoingly teachable. We all need to be ongoingly transparent. We all need to 
be ongoingly, ongoingly accept the invitation of God. And we all need to invite the ongoing washing and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Let's just pray and ask God to, uh, to, to, to open our hearts and ears to this message. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for, uh, for what you say to us, Lord God. We just pray, Lord God, we need you. We need the Holy Spirit, Lord God, to open our hearts, open our minds, and to hear what we have to say, Lord God. Lord, show us what it means to be teachable. Lord God, show us what it means to be transparent. Show us what it means to daily accept the invitation of your kindness, love, and mercy. And Lord God, lead us by your Holy Spirit, Lord God, so that we can continually be cleaned and rebuilt. We just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.